All right, Father, we do come before you again today. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, thank you for strengthening us, Lord, for another a day to come and worship you and gather together, Lord, as your people in holy assembly in a holy convocation, Lord, as we gather around your word and we gather around, Lord, uh, the truths that you've revealed to us and we pray that you would sanctify us by them, Lord. The scripture declares, Lord, that we are to be sanctified by your word and your word by your truth and your word is truth and therefore lord we ask that as your word goes forth and as we discuss it and talk about it lord that it would permeate our mind our heart and that ultimately lord that your word would uh, trickle down into every aspect of our life uh, so that lord in everything that we do as paul says that whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we may glorify you. We may bring you glory. Do it to the glory of God. And uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So <clears throat> we are continuing on uh, our discussion uh, on the doctrine of sin. And uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, what sin is. And uh, it's just always good to refresh, you know, what sin is and how did we define sin? What is the textbook definition of sin? Well, harmatology is the, the name of, of, the, of the study of sin. Transgression of God's law. That's right. So breaking God's commands is probably the best way to define what sin is. Um, we, also, we also talked about uh, we also talked about the where aspect of sin. Right? Where did sin come from? And uh, I don't think there's a standard definition of that, but very, some very important things that we pointed out is, you remember, uh, we, we made it very clear that <clears throat> sin does not come from God, right? It does not come from God. God is not the author of sin. Sin did not originate in the being of God. At the same time, we also uh, understood that beneath that, there is the sovereignty of God, <clears throat> The sovereignty of God, obviously, where sin does not escape God's uh, control. Sin does not escape God's um, superintendence of his creation. Uh, sin did not enter into the world uh, by accident, as if God had nothing to do with it and had no control over it or, or something like that. So we did talk about the fact that God did ordain sin to be. He ordained that sin would be. And we talked about the very important aspect of that with uh, the discussion of secondary causes. Okay, that God uses secondary causes uh, to bring about his purposes in the world, even with regards to sin. So we pointed out that Satan had sin discovered in him. That uh, sin, we could say it this way, that sin is a result of God's mutable creatures. What does the word mutable mean? Is that they can change. You've heard of the immutability of God, right? That just means God cannot change. Well, all of his creatures, when they were first created, the angels and man, were created with a mutable capacity. Uh, Adam could go from being in a state of innocence to a state of guilt. Uh, choosing what is good and choosing what is, what is wrong. Same thing with Apparently with the angels, the angels have the capacity to change their nature from being good and innocent angels to being fallen and reprobate. 
We also discuss the topic of election. Because in scripture, scripture talks about not only elect people, but elect angels. And uh, that, that shows us that God is sovereign even over the fall of angels, uh, which is um, uh, very, very deep and profound ideas. But we don't want to deny any of these things because I think it would affect our understanding of sin in a very adverse way. So we don't want to deny um, the sovereign election of God over men and angels, all of those things. And um, we also talked about how. How does sin come into the world? And we saw that the primary agent of sin, the very original source, was Satan. And that Satan is where sin entered into the created order, right? However, we also pointed out carefully that through Adam, sin, uh, 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 sin entered into the human race. And that it was through Adamic headship, federal headship of Adam. Adam, what does it mean for Adam to be our federal head? He represents us in what way? Legally, that's right. He is our legal representative, representative before God. And that's why our, the second Adam, right? Second Adam, um, he is also our legal representative for uh, justification or for uh, righteousness, right? For righteousness. So Jesus justifies us imputes to us his righteousness. These are forensic terms in scripture. These are legal matters, which means the first Adam also was our legal representative. It was because of our legal head that the human race was declared guilty, guilty in Adam. And so through Adam came his guilt, came his, the penalty of his guilt, um, his death sentence, and his moral corruption is moral corruption. And um, you remember that we pointed out that this is, what, this is one of the hardest doctrines in all of Scripture. Uh, Adamic sin. Original sin. Wayne Grudem likes to talk about inherited sin. Because original sin just sounds like it's going back to the primary place where it happened. But inherited sin gets more to the, how it spreads to the human race, how we inherit it from our forefather. You know, so that's an acceptable term, I think. But today, I want to talk about why, why, uh, why, and um, uh, I'm running out of questions. But the why of sin? Why do we sin? And you know, this obviously is talking about um, actual sin in our lives, um, uh, sin in our lives. Uh, so real sin, actual sin. Why do we sin? Now we know it's because, well, we have the original sin nature inside of us and all of that. Uh, but when we're talking about actual sin in our lives, I want to point out a couple of things to us. Number one, I want to point out that all people are sinful before God. We know this, Romans chapter 3, the whole theology. Turn to Romans 3. Right, but this is very important, folks, because there was a recent article in, in uh, Pathos, which is kind of a liberal uh, newspaper outlet or whatever, and um, uh, they asked the question, or one liberal uh, 
columnist defined what is a Christian and how does one become a Christian? You see, this is very important because um, the elementary things are being challenged. The elementary things of the faith are being redefined. So we always have to get back down to, okay, the basics, the gospel. What is the nature of man? What is harmatology? Can I prove harmatology? If one of my coworkers at work put me on the spot, uh, let's say a Pelagian puts me on the spot. Pelagian is somebody that follows basically in the teaching of Pelagius, a fourth century heretic who denied the doctrine of original sin and many, many other things. We'll get to that in a minute. But, um, but what if somebody challenges me on the doctrine of original sin? Can I defend it? Can I give a couple of verses on original sin? Can I show where sin came from, how it spread, and how everyone today is condemned under the weight of the law? Can I show how everybody today is, in fact, a sinner? Uh, because there's all sorts of definitions of sin. Sin is your environment. You know, I just did, a, uh, I did an interview with uh, UNT, the uh, University of North Texas, where we do uh, evangelism. Their newspaper interviewed me about our open-air preaching, and the guy that was interviewing me wanted to know, you know, uh, somewhere in the conversation I had, I had said something like, uh, you know, he, he talks about, like, talk about, talk about that, the fact that the, when the crowd gets crazy, what happens, and, you know, what's going on there and all of that. You know, I said, well, you know, I do believe in de demonic activity, that we also are, I believe in real spiritual warfare. I'm a Christian. I believe in angels and demons and Satan and heaven and hell. I believe in all of that, you know? And he says, well, what do you mean demons? He's like, the way I've always understood that is like we all battle our demons. So for him, demonology is nothing more than a metaphor for the, your habits, right? But that is not what the Bible teaches. So again, just the very basic elementary gospel level truth of Christianity is constantly under assault and constantly needs to be defended. Constantly. We can never let up, right? Never. I mean, just look at the history of the Christian church going all the way back to the beginning when probably the very first major Christian controversy erupted on the scene of world history, namely Christology, um, Arius, under the um, under the um, the emperorship of Constantine, and at the Council of Nicaea at 325 A.D., they had to call a big council together because this guy Arius is going around under the protection of Constantine because he was good friends with Constantine. He's going around the Roman Empire that by this time has been already greatly Christianized after the time of the apostles, and he is teaching Jesus as a creature. He is a created being. And he is not divine. He is not God incarnate. And so the church had to address that. But guess what, folks? Even though Arius was defeated at the Council of Nicaea and uh, later declared to be a complete heretic, um, you look at the history of Christianity, Christology has never gone away. <laughs> you still have your foes that pop up on world history, you know, on the stage of world history from time to time. After Arius, it was Sibelius who introduced the, con the concept of modalism, the idea that God is one person. And is what, so what is, what is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? Oh, those are just mere manifestations of the one person. So if you would, God is one person who wears three different masks. Right? 
Oneness Pentecostal theology later in the 18 in the 1800s took that over, okay, and said really it's what it is. It's Jesus only. There is only one divine person, and it is Jesus. It's called Jesus onlyism, right? So, just because we did something really great in defending the faith way back in the fourth century, that doesn't mean that in the 21st century we are done defending Christology. <laughs> So we can never let down our guard on these simple truths like man is a sinner. <laughs> really? Yeah, we, we, we have to defend that over and over. So uh, Romans 3. Uh, I know I went a long way around the barn on that, but I had to get that out of my system. Sorry. Uh, begin, Romans 3. Uh, let's just kind of move through this exposition here. It says... Um, in verse 9, what then, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. You see that? The Apostle Paul right there has put all of humanity under the condemnation of sin. They all have Adamic guilt. They all have original sin. They all have the sin principle at work in them. And he says, as it is written. So this is being proved now from going all the way back to an ancient proof text out of Psalm 14. And he says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is, there is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And we can just exposit this passage of scripture and see not only the presence of sin, not only the fact of sin, but we can also understand the nature of sin. There is no one who understands. What does that lend itself to? What aspect of sin does that deal with? There is no one who understands. And um, the fallen mind. So here, uh, it's kind of like, what, what do you mean by understand? Well, I understand lots of things. So what do you think he's talking about? There are none who understand. Yes, sin, the relationship of God, the reality of God, the fact that man is, should be under God. Yeah, this is the Psalms, right? So theologically, in the Psalms, the theology of the Psalm would say any time the noetic effects of sin are mentioned, the mind, the ignorance, the, 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 the failure to understand, it's always in relationship to the law of the Lord. Man does not understand the law of the Lord, which means he does not have a grasp on God's word. He doesn't esteem it right. He can't see. His per mental perception and his mental faculties are blinded to the truth of the law. You know, so th that's what it means. No one understands. In other words, man's in a state of spiritual stupor. He's in a, spate, a, a state of spiritual uh, uh, retardation, we could say. There is none who seeks for God. What does that deal with? There is none that seek for God. Focus of your worship. Focus of your worship. Okay. All right. So we have right there, we have the mind being referred to. Um, there is no one who seeks for God. Wisdom of God. So I would say that what this is referring to is the will of man, the will of man, the volitional aspect of man, the will or the volition of man with his volition, with his ambitions, right? A lot of ambitious people in this world, right? A lot of people in this world who are very ambitious about a lot of things in life. 
You think of entrepreneurs, they're so driven and they're so focused on their what, their product and their business or whatever, you know, and they, they have a goal, they have an end, they have a means to get there. Um, and, 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 and everywhere you see the world all around us, people are in pursuit of something, right? But what the psalmist is saying is that man, because of his sin, his very volitional power is fallen so that he doesn't seek what he ought to seek above everything else. He ought to seek God instead of money. Right? He ought to seek God instead of possessions. And so his mind, his volition, verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Isn't that amazing? Together they have become Useless. So at a, at a social level, all of humanity, comprehensively, all of mankind together, right? The global community, um, in God's eyes, is useless. Oh, wow. That's some powerful words, right? Why are they useless? They are useless because of sin. What God is saying is, look, the present state that man is in has rendered him completely useless for God's purposes. He can't use sinful man for anything, right? They serve no good, divine, righteous purpose. What an indictment. I mean, you just read this on CNN. It <laughs> chase you out of the studios. You know, how does God view the world? Well, I don't know, Larry King says right here, Everyone is useless in God's eyes. You know, cut the tape. Oh, hold on. You can't talk like that when we're on the air. I mean, we're not going to get anywhere, you know. So, and this is not politically correct. This is, but this is what the Bible teaches. You know, there is none who does good. There is none that does good. So, man's motives are also called into question. Why do you do what you do? It says, there is none who does good, not even one. Not even one. The whole entire human race under sin. Remember, verse 9, under sin, under the tyranny of sin. This is what man is like. Not even one is a pursuer of good. Right? You know that by the examples in the Bible. Great examples of the Bible of men who were righteous and seemingly did good. Solomon was given so much wisdom, and, and, and it seems like there's a bright spot in the Word of God. And then, and then the, the irony of irony is that Solomon uses his wisdom for very foolish things. Like disobeying God's commands. Don't multiply wives. Don't multiply horses. Right? And what does he do? He disobeys that command. And he goes out and he does that very thing God told kings not to do. And so, no, no one, there is no bright spot uh, in the whole of humanity apart from, obviously, Jesus Christ. Uh, and in the Psalms, the theology of the Psalms is that there is one prototypical righteous man, and that is the Messiah. That is, that is Christ. He is the righteous man of Psalm 1. He is the one who always delights in the law of the Lord. He never, uh, he never is unfruitful. He never disobeys God's commands. He always delights in God's will. Anyway, you see, you see what's going on here. Look at this. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. This is the human condition. I mean, you want to understand, you know, where humanity is at. Just, I, I just, 
you know, I just encourage you, open a commentary and just go line by line here in Romans chapter 3 and you'll see exactly where we stand. I mean, I, I mean, guys, we still live in a society that doesn't even believe that sin exists. They don't believe it, it exists. Roman Catholic theology also cannot account for the biblical doctrine of sin. In Catholic theology, sin is really the absence of something and is not the presence of anything. It is really the denial of, super, of, of God's superabundant grace. It's not the presence of, of, of an actual sin nature. Well, that's what Catholicism teaches about sin. It's what man lacks. It's not so much what he is. Right? It's, the problem with that is it turns man into a victim instead of a uh, violator right, of God's law. So we can't have that. Because the Bible is telling us right here that man is a sinner. He does sin. Uh, their throat is an open grave. All he can do with his mouth is curse and bring forth death with his mouth. And deception. The tongues keep deceiving. I mean, think of the politicians. Think of the false teachers. Think of your own heart. How decept deceptive and des desperately wicked your own heart can be at times. It says, the poison of asps is under their lips. In other words, there's nothing but venom inside. Left to ourselves, that's what we are. We are like poisonous snakes. And we will devour one another with our, just with our lips. That's why James talks about taming the tongue. Why? Because the tongue is such a powerful, little, unruly member of your body that just with the tongue, you can set a whole forest ablaze. A whirlwind, a world of iniquity will result from just one gossip, one slander, one lie, right? One cold, harsh word towards your brother, your sister, your spouse, etc. <clears throat> okay, let's, let's move on. You get the point from Romans uh, chapter 3. It's exactly what Proverbs says in Proverbs 20 verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure of sin? No one. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. <clears throat> I remember going, uh, doing some evangelism downtown Fort Worth, and I encountered a gentleman down there. I was preaching and I was listening to him. Okay, there's a lot of truth in what he's saying. Okay, I hear what he's saying. And then he said something that was like, bingo. Okay, there we go. And it's just what I was looking for, you know. He said something that was doctrinally off. And so I went and, uh, and you know, grabbed one of the pieces of literature that he was you know, handing out and it had to do with Bill, Bill Clinton being the Antichrist. And uh, yeah, you know, just some light reading. Uh, but. Um, it turned out he was a uh, sinless perfectionist, this gentleman that was out there preaching. And I took him to this verse right here in uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Well, really, verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Uh, his word is not in us. And I said, you know, this is a point of grammar. The present tense, if we say, you know, is crucial. There's never a point in time where we can say we have come to the place where we no longer sin. And anybody that tells you that, according to this, is a liar and his word is not in him. Think about that, folks. Uh, 
You know, so if I'm standing in front of somebody who tells me I no longer sin, okay, I have a choice to make. Either I'm going to believe the testimony of Scripture or I'm going to believe what this guy's telling me. <laughs> it's that simple. And I have to decide, okay, either I'm going to offend God by not believing what his word says or I'm going to offend this individual by telling him I don't believe what he says. <laughs> who would you rather offend? <laughs> right? And not that we want to offend, but just by virtue of the fact that we disagree, it will be offensive to him. No, no, no. We can never say that we are without sin. That we are without sin. Um, now here's a question I have for us. Does our ability limit our responsibility? In other words, if man is so sinful, if he is so fallen, if he is as depraved as total depravity teaches, because that's really what we're looking at here, is the concept of depravity, does that alleviate him of the guilt of his sin? Look, he's not able not to sin. So how can he be held accountable for something he's not able to do? Namely, stop sinning. Right? So how would we answer that? Jesus regenerates. What's that? Jesus will regenerate. Well, the question is of accountability. Is how can man be held responsible if he is not able not to sin? You know, it's a fair question. I mean, that's the type of question I get at UNT. You know what I mean? It's yes, ma'am. So let me make the question very clear, right? So we're talking about the inability of man. So man is not able, right, to stop sinning. He is not able to obey the commands of God. That's what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, right? He's just not able to obey God's commands. So how can God hold the personal accountable for something he is not able to do? Okay. I mean, in one sense, don't we just have to submit our, our opinions to God's view of justice? Yeah. Like to us, the complaint's going to be, well, that's not fair. Right. But if God says that's the way he's doing it, you know, it's just another way that man is not, that his fallen mind is trying to come out from underneath the judgments of God. So, you know, God's word says maybe it would be a short answer. You know, that's how God does it. You know, that's how God, he uses federal hardship and we're accountable for Adam's sin and all of that. Yeah. Um, that's probably where I would go. Or you could go Romans 9 because it almost asks the same question. But right. With a little... Harsher answer, maybe, but um, you know what I mean. At one point, they're just using their reasoning and their view of fairness to to challenge God and to challenge His judgment of sinners. Right? Yeah, if we start defining things according to what is fair and that makes them right and true, right, then we deny the gospel. Remember what we said before, right? What what happens with the first Adam, right, is what is going to be found to be true many times with the second Adam. So Adam one, Adam two, right? Adam in the garden, Christ um, in the gospel, right? Well, that, that match too, I'm gonna remember that. <laughs> Adam in the garden, Christ in the gospel. That's good, that's good. Like that. <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah, that's right. If we're talking about what is fair, right? Then Adamic guilt being imputed to us if we deem that to be unfair, and we also have to say Christ's righteousness imputed to us is unfair. Right? So it calls into question the whole way that God deals with humanity, the whole economy of God. It calls into question man's dealings, God's dealings with man. And as Pastor Chris pointed out, Romans chapter 9, verse 20 says, Who are you, O man? 
to question God. Who are you, O man, to question the potter? Does he not have right over the clay to make out, out of one lump of dough two different vessels? Right? One for honor, one for dishonor. And that's powerful, you guys. I just, you know, Romans chapter 9 is a passage I wrestled with for years. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. And remember, I grew up in an Armenian context where I was being told, you know, uh, the sovereignty of God, be careful. Shrek, keep, shh, keep that down. Talk about the sovereignty of God. I said, well, that's it's all over the Bible. How am I supposed to keep it down? <laughs> you know? Um, and Romans chapter 9 is teaching that. that God is absolutely sovereign. But, but it just brings that point in, you know, to bear that we can't question God's dealings with man. And um, everywhere in Scripture, all of the testimony of Scripture suggests that man is guilty for the deeds that he has done. You think about the fact that it says in Revelation that books will be open, and what will be in those books? The deeds that we have done, and we will be judged according to the deeds that we have done. Even though we have Adamic guilt and Adamic corruption, nowhere in the Bible are we judged for Adamic sin, right? For, for Adam's sin, you know? And this person was cast in the lake of fire because of what Adam did. That's not, never what it says. It's always according to their deeds. Yes, sir. Is the, in, in Romans uh, 1, 18, the passage there, is that the book that we narrow without excuse? They know that there is a God. It's kind of what Amanda was saying. They know there's a God. Good point. And Romans 2, 15. Or oh, wait, wait, wait. What is it? 1, 1 18. Um, oh, yeah. Through 20, something. It says, For the invisible attributes, um, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived by which his creation of the world. And in and 20. things that have been made so that they are without excuse. That's God's written on their heart. Yeah. And they are, they are suppressing. And that alone is enough sin right there to condemn them. In spite of all the other sins that we you know are, exist as well. But that alone is enough to condemn them. And they're without excuse. That's correct. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. And um, <clears throat> the parallel passage to that is in chapter 2, mm -hmm. verses 14 and 15, where people who don't have the Bible... Who don't have the words are judged without the Bible and without the law and without the words of the Bible being going back to Romans chapter 1 being innate in them their conscience bearing witness testifying they violate the principle the law in their conscience that the work of the law that's been written in their heart you know so yeah that, that's that's right so it's like we're either going to think the thoughts of God after him that you know, man is without excuse and that it is righteous for God to judge man, even though man is incapable of pulling him from himself from that situation. Yes, sir. It's like faulting the ground for man's inability to fly. Like if you jump out of a plane without a parachute, which is what we've done in Adam, then we're saying it's not fair for the ground to splatter us. To be the ground. Yeah, yeah, like the ground is being the ground. How dare the ground be hard? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I mean, this is the way it is, you know. So very important, though, that we talk about these things because this will come up. You know, this will come up. This is precisely Pelagius's point in his heresy was that, look, uh, you know, God holds man accountable in only insofar as he is able, you know. So instead of interpreting things biblically, Pelagius chose to interpret things philosophically. There's the departure, right? You're going to follow God's thoughts after him, or you're going to follow your own thoughts, what's rational and reasonable in your mind. 
I can't believe when people say, um, it's just not reasonable to believe this. Or even, you know, some apologetics books, a reasonable faith. Reasonable according to who? Right? It's not reason, folks. Reason is not the final arbiter of truth. Right? It should say a revelational faith. <laughs> because that's really what it is, right? Truth is determined by revelation, not by human reason. You know? Yes, sir? Uh, wouldn't you say at the same time the biblical revelational faith is reasonable in the sense that we are not uh, insane in our thinking, but we are very rational, even though it, it's all under under the authority of Scripture, under the authority of the revelation which God has Yeah, yeah. So long as what is reasonable is what is revealed to be reasonable. Right. How do you know what reasonable is? Yeah. So it's, yeah, so it's kind of a starting point, you know what I mean? It's assuming what theologians call neutrality. That believer and unbeliever look at the facts, okay, and they both look at the facts objectively and they can interpret them, you know, according to, you know, total objective thought, which is completely wrong. You know what I mean? Uh, man will always interpret everything according to the nature of his assumptions. So non-believer will interpret everything according to non-believing worldview. Believer will always interpret everything according to a believing worldview. Right? So the question then bears out whose assumptions are correct. And of course, as believers, we only have the right to say Christian assumption is correct, not non-Christian assumption. So, I mean, this gets into a whole different discussion of apologetics and transcendental arguments and things like that. But, um, but it is good to think through these things, folks. That human reason is not the arbiter of final truth, ultimate truth, right? Um, what may be another problem with that? Just let me flesh this out a little bit more, okay? What would, be, what would be another problem with determining things on the basis of what is fair in our mind? So even so, sin. even that assessment yeah. is suspect to sin. Exactly. Okay, that's one. I'm thinking of uh, people, kind of people differ. So who's right? Okay. Some person may say, "Well, that's fair." Some will say, "It is." So who would be right? So we have no standard of no no arbiter of truth. I'm thinking of something else. We're just always going to make a God that is okay with us. Yeah. If we do it with the doctrine of Adamic sin, what else will we do? What else could we do it with? We could do it with it. What's that? We could do it with anything else, right? Uh, I'm thinking of one doctrine specifically that is often denied. What's that? Atonement. Okay, limited atonement. Yeah, that doesn't sound fair, right? I'm thinking about the doctrine of hell. Let me tell you why. Um, there is a resurgence right now going on, even within the Reformed churches, many Reformed churches, of the doctrine of annihilationism. Um, it just is. You know, um, uh, you know, a lot of books have been written as a response. Um, you know, I was preaching here um, last year sometime, I think it was, um, and after I got done preaching, a gentleman came up to me and uh, handed me a, a, you know, some magazine to some theology and something like that. And, I don't even know how it happened other than it must have been just the Lord wanting to expose this gentleman, but 
Somehow we got on the subject of hell, and he began to articulate to me very zealously and very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Very, um, yeah, just, just, just very, very uh, abrasively, you know, why I should abandon the traditional view of hell. <laughs> okay, you know, let, me, let me give you guys some insight. After I'm done preaching, I'm, I feel like I just got off the moon or something, you know, so I'm, I'm a little bit, like, disoriented to, you know, let alone, you know, the first conversation I get into, it's like, phew, you know, <laughs> you need to rethink your position on hell. No, 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 don't deny it. No, no, let me explain it to you. And I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I said, sir, my position on hell is as shut as hell itself. I will never change my position on, on the doctrine of hell, the classical position on hell. Yes, sir. Doesn't Jesus talk more on hell than heaven? He does, yeah. He does, yeah. Yeah, it's like I tell people at UNT, look, if annihilation is true, why come out to UNT? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If I really believe that at the end of the day, you're just going to cease to exist, you will never experience pain or torment in hell, or even if it's just for a little time, it will end. There's hope. The pain will be over. Uh, my friends, you know, as awful as the doctrine of hell may appear to, uh, to us, we have to hold the tension of the biblical teaching of hell because it will affect everything else. It's just like this, you know, it's not fair. Well, you know what, it's also not fair. Why would God, God consign people to eternal torment? Okay, I don't like that either. Philosophically, it's disturbing. Therefore, I'll do away with it. You know what I mean? And this is what man does. They rationalize their way out. John Wesley uh, rationalized his way into really bad positions on theology, like saying that, look, if he limited atonement is true, God is worse than the devil. You know, he said that, you know. Um, that's because in his mind, he re this, this, how could that be fair? That Christ would only atone for the sin of his people. Um, things like that. Uh, we're almost out of time, but let's keep going here. Um, I want to talk also a little bit about the effects of the penalty of sin and the eradication of sin. Turn to Revelation 21. 27 because the good news for us is is that there is coming a time when God is going to do away with sin what a glorious day that will be Revelation 21 27 speaking of uh, the new city there right, the new heavens or the excuse me the new Jerusalem and he says nothing unclean no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. You see that? Total exclusion of all that is profane, and that is everything that is against his law, everything that is against his will, his holiness, will be excluded from heaven. I just think that's just so remarkable. You know, one of the things that Pelagius taught was the doctrine of free will, very, very powerfully, right? It's just, that that's what it was all about. During the Reformation, Martin Luther debated Erasmus. And Luther said that the most important controversy between us is not justification by faith alone. He says the most important controversy is the nature of the will. So what did Luther write? Wow, man, you guys are like scholars. That's good. Amen, yeah. I believe in the doctrine, you know, election, you know, that we're chosen. But yeah. you try to explain that to people like my church or Baptist church, and the first thing they do is say, well, what about free will? Yeah, that's you know, right. We don't know how to explain about free will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, 
I mean, we live in a free will culture, a Pelagian, you know, we, even the church, you know, you're, you're talking about the, you know, what R.C. Sproul called the Pelagian captivity of the church. The whole world, you know, the whole church, you know, evangelicalism at large is captive to a Pelagian way of thinking. That man's will is, though it has been marred by sin, it is still free. It is still free. It's not fallen. So, 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 you know, um, Luther wrote the bondage of the will to show, no, we don't have free will in a libertarian sense where we are free to do whatever we want. We have a, a, a will that is fallen, that is bound. And I say, you know, God takes away your free will all the time. I don't know how people can even on a philosophical level argue this. Did you have a choice to be born? I mean, look at this verse right here, Revelation 21, 27. Will you have the choice in heaven to sin? Apparently not. Well, you have the choice to say, you know what? I don't want to be in heaven anymore. I'm just going to... You can't, right? And why? It's not so much because you don't have free will. It's because your will has been liberated to do what's right. Your nature has been changed. I would say man has a free will insofar as he is able to do what is consistent with his nature. So if a man has a sinful nature, he can only do what is consistent with that. If a man has a redeemed nature, guess what? We have the capacity to do what is consistent with the redeemed nature, which is to please God, to worship God, to obey God. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. Very crucial verses for that. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. So he is going to eradicate sin. Um, but we also have to talk about the penalty of sin, Burkhoff in the Systematic Theology, which is a fantastic book you all should have on your shelf, except for that part about infant baptism. Anyway, <laughs> and maybe some other fine points, but you know what I mean. As a whole, Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology is, I, I don't want to say the best. How can you say the best? But it's so good. It's so good. He points out four aspects of the punishment of sin. He speaks of spiritual death, present-day suffering, physical death, and eternal death. So, spiritual death. Spiritual death is that which separates us from God, right? It is exactly what happened to Adam the moment that he sinned. He died spiritually. He no longer had access to the presence of God, symbolized by the angel guarding the way back to the tree of life. Adam was banished from paradise because of what he did. What a symbol of the fact that he, be, that he became spiritually dead. There was no spiritual life in him. And uh, that is certainly one of the ways that God punishes sin, is that it results in spiritual death. Let me read to you what Burkhoff says. We are by nature not only unrighteous in the sight of God, but also unholy. And this unholiness manifests itself in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. It is always active within us like a poisoned fountain, polluting the streams of life. And if, we're, and if it were not for the restraining influence of the common grace of God, it would render social life entirely impossible. That's right. Thanks be to God that even though this is a depraved world, by His common grace, He has decided to put certain constraints on life. I mean, just this week, I heard the most disturbing uh, story out of the UK. A young, a young man, you know, 
I mean, I feel like I gotta share this, share my pain with you, but I mean, it's important for us. I mean, we can't be ignorant of sin and we can't be ignorant of the type of world that we're living in. A young man converts to Islam in London, young 23, 24 year old guy. And he goes on a belligerent rampage, starts hopping over people's backyard fences with a butcher knife, finds an old lady back there gardening and takes her head off. This is the world that we're living in. This is the kind of world that we're in. And I don't understand how some pastors and some churches want to make Christianity so light and fluffy and funny and Disneyland and arcades, right? Uh, life is deadly serious. Mm -hmm. Deadly serious. People we'll use a Disney version of Christianity and they see and, uh, and they heed them. Even though he may be in the church, they see they see all the bad stuff in the world, and they hear this Disney stuff. It's going to turn them off the wrong way, or they're going to come for the wrong reasons. Yeah, right. They're they're, they're going to come to get a certain idea of what Christianity is, what they've made it in their mind. Yeah. You know, and this is happening everywhere right now with gay Christianity, quote unquote. Right, I mean. <laughs> Junior high, high school kids, grown, everything. I mean, by the thousands right now are leaving the church in the name of gay Christianity because they went to the church and they didn't get what they thought they would get, fulfillment. They didn't get, you know, all their, their, their felt needs met, all of those types of things. So they went to, uh, they went to Christianity because they wanted a, thera a therapeutic counselor, right? Instead, you know, they found that you know, that, that, that the, what the Bible really teaches about sin, what it really teaches about repentance, you know, and they fall away. Exactly as the parable of the sower says, because of the word, they fall away. You know, so people become disillusioned with Christianity. Oh, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I found it to be very judgmental, very narrow-minded, very um, intolerant. intolerant, you know, oppressive harmful, psychologically damaging. You know, Vicki Beeching, you know, that famous worship leader, that TV interview uh, when she was debating Pastor Scott Lively, after he articulated the simple Bible teaching on homosexuality, she said, that is so damaging. She said, that's why I'm getting my PhD, to correct the kind of teaching that you're peddling, is what she said. I'm thinking, all he did, I mean, he just basically gave a, just a simple Sunday school answer to, is homosexuality sin? Yes, I mean, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Leviticus chapter 18, 20. Even if you're doing a lot of something offensive. Yeah, yeah. Because ultimately it's the truth that offends, you know. So other aspects of the penalty of sin is suffering in this present life. We all know that, don't we, through disease, sickness, uh, pain, uh, the decay of our outward man, all of these things. Physical death is also a result of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. The reason we die is because of sin. You know, that's a great apologetic, by the way. You can ask people that at work or wherever you're at. Why do people die? Well, what do you mean why people die? Well, you get old. Why? Well, because your cells run out of life. Why? Well, because, I mean, we live in, you know, second law of thermodynamics. Why? Right. Well, because that's, you know, the universe is like that. Why is the universe like that? That's right. Right? Through sin, death entered into the world. And man began to, de to decay. 
That's the truth. And then finally, eternal death. That is obviously the gravest of all, is eternal death. Let me give you one last quote from Burkhoff, and then we're done, okay? Listen closely. He says, The restraints of the present fall away, and the corruption of sin has its perfect work. The full weight of the wrath of God descends on the condemned. Their separation from God, the source of life and joy, is complete. And this means death is the most awful sense of the word. Their outward condition is made to correspond with the inward condition of their evil souls. There are pains of conscience and physical pain. Um, this, is, um, this is very important here because... Um, what was it that, that caught my eye? Sorry about that. I was looking to say about that book you were talking about. I got the, the, the phrase that caught me here is the most awful sense of the word death. The reason I, I say that is because what happened eventually with the with the doctrine of, of death in a humanist society in, a, in the modern era, especially in the post-Enlightenment area, and what I mean by that is it's chiefly after the, the end of the 1700s, especially with the philosophy of men like Immanuel Kant, Hegel, David Hume, and others, what, ha what ended up happening was that death became sci scientific. Death became part of life. Have you ever heard anybody say, death is part of life? Yeah. As if it's totally natural, right? That is as unbiblical of a worldview as you can get. What does the Bible say about death? It's an enemy. It is a curse, right? What else does it say? I mean, that sums it up, right? I mean, what is that saying then? If it's an enemy and it's a curse, then it's unnatural. It's not the way things are supposed to be. Things are not supposed to die, right? Death is not just part of life. You got to just accept it like you accept everything else. Death didn't come in until sin came in. That's right. Death is the result of sin. I and mean, that's exactly what the modern man refuses to acknowledge is that death is the byproduct of sin. No, death is just a byproduct of evolutionary process in the mind and the synapses of the brain right now. No. 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 Death is religious. Death is a religious um, point. Right? We die because of our relationship or lack thereof with God. Yes, Mike? So a curse uh, is really a direct judgment of God, right? Yeah. It is a, a direct judgment of God. Yeah, it's a result of the wrath of God. That's it. Mm-hmm. Any other observations you, you all want to make? Christ becoming our curse. Good. Thank you for ending it on a gospel note. <laughs> kind of depressing, right? To look at sin and, and sin's devastation and effects. And we don't need to go any further than our own lives, our own hearts, you know, to see the things that we regret and that we've experienced and that we've suffered because of our own foolishness, you know, our own sin and the consequences of sin in our own lives. To know sin is awful. And death is the awful result of sin. Yes, ma'am? Well, I was reading a Grace Jones. Prepare for death. Um, therefore, 
you also um, be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. And he was just talking about how like we have to all be ready any minute to die because if we die, then that's as good as like the trumpet sounding, you know. Um, that could be as if like kind of like the Lord coming back. But they said um, this. This is the part that I wanted to read really quick. Let me see here in a second. The difference between um, the unbeliever and the believer when they die. Hold on, let me just see here if I can find this. The separation to the sinner must be deeply affecting in terms of death. The separation from the sinner must be deeply affecting for all his pleasures arise from the gratification of his bodily senses. For the saint, this separation is pleasing. For the body is one great impediment to his devotions and spirituality, either annoying him incessantly by its lusts or indisposing and thwarting him by its tendency to lassitude, sickness, and death. In other words, you know, the unbeliever um, doesn't want to die because all of their pleasure is associated to the body. And the believer wants to die and wants to leave because this body is a hindrance. Yeah, the the Bible says the believers do not love their life unto death. You know what I mean? We we can't love our lives in this world to that extent that we're, at all costs, we, we don't want to let it go. To live as Christ to die as gain. I mean, we really need to get to that point in our lives where we can say that. You know what I mean? For our own good. You know what I mean? Let's pray. I'm already late. I'm, I've been bad, so let's, let's close. Father, Lord, again, thank you, Lord, for giving us a divine guide, truth, Lord, to giving us um, so much clarity, Lord, where there is so much uh, confusion in our society. Lord, um, help us, Lord. We have the truth. We know the truth. Far be it from us that we would keep our mouths closed regarding the truth. And uh, help us, Lord. Use us with the gospel, the only answer to all of this sin and death in the world. We give you all praise and glory, Lord. Bless our worship service. Let it be for your glory and let it be pleasing to you, a sweet aroma, Lord, the fragrance of your people coming together in fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.